to the chief musician on the instrument of Gath, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. O oh Lord, how, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Indeed, Lord, we're, well, we ought to be, just as David was, in awe, Lord, of your transcendence uh, and your imminence. And uh, so, Lord, I pray that as we look over this, we would be, uh, we would once again have the proper perspective and maybe even put in our place. As Solomon would say, God is in heaven and I'm on earth. And David says elsewhere, we are, we are like a breath. We're here a moment and then we're gone. But Lord, you endure forever. And so, Lord, teach us to understand uh, how high you are, how lofty, and, uh, and Lord, how minuscule really we are. So Lord, teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, be seated. So as I said, the, as I was praying, the psalm is really about perspective. It's about perspective. And David has a good way of doing that. Um, again, there's no context for this other than perhaps David, uh, maybe as a shepherd boy, uh, you know, watching the sheep at night and not having his phone to scroll through and uh, look at the insanity of the news or a game or whatever, but he had the stars. He had the sky. He had the heavenly bodies. He had, um, of course, animals to listen to in the night. Uh, but he, uh, I think his senses were probably heightened because of where he was. And I mean, what do you do night after night after night after night as you watch after the sheep? Could be, uh, as we know, that the Middle Eastern homes were flat on the top and uh, you would escape to the roof at night uh, for the, the coolness and then you would stare into the heavens. And um, who knows, he may have been a boy when he wrote this, he may have been older. Uh, whatever that was, uh, it was from that that he gained some perspective about God and about himself. And I think that we in Western culture could use some perspective uh, about God and about ourselves. Uh, so first of all, you notice in the introduction that it, it says on the instrument of gath, a uh, gatith uh, in the Hebrew, it may be an instrument, it may be a musical tune, setting the song to a tune, nobody really knows. Um, but as we've said before, it's the content of the, the, uh, the psalm that we're most concerned with. Uh, if you read ahead, uh, or you're paying attention when I read, not saying that you weren't, uh, but you may have noticed that the psalm begins the way that it, it ends, or it ends the way it begins, saying, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. So he says that out front because he's already made these observations. Then he writes them again, and as he thinks about it, it comes out of his mouth again. So it's a great way to begin. It's a great way to end. So here's uh, verse 1 again without the introduction. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all of the earth who have set your glory above uh, the heavens. Of course, when you, uh, in the scriptures, you see heavens is usually plural. The, the, the Mormons would like to tell us that there's three levels of heaven. 
uh, or glory that we can go to, where in the scriptures, though heavens is always referring to uh, you know, the air that we breathe or the, where the birds fly, uh, then where the stars dwell, and then where God dwells. So heavens, plural, that's all that that means. It means everything that we can, we, we see the two of them, and then we know theologically about the final one. What I'd like you to notice briefly here, if you, now it always depends on which translation you have. I appreciate the translations that have uh, kind of helped us with knowing what words are behind the English words in the Hebrew, because then I don't have to look it up. Uh, for example, uh, here, I'll show you one in the text, but one of the advantages of the King James Version are the these and the thous and the you and yours. Uh, if you speak uh, King James ease, uh, you and yours is plural. Well, I don't have to look at my Greek New Testament to figure that out. I just know because the King James translators put that in there. Uh, the uh, and thine is singular. So that's kind of nice. So here, uh, you notice how the first, if you have a New King James, I, don't, I didn't look to see what some of the others do. Uh, sometimes the uh, New American Standard does some of this, but the first use of the word Lord has all capitals. Does everybody's translation have that? All capitals? Uh, and only the first letter of the second Lord has, is capitalized. And so the first one is God's proper name in Hebrew, which is Yahweh. Yahweh. The second is the Hebrew word Adan, which means Lord or Master. Uh, the word is associated with authority or power. And uh, so people could be called Adan. Okay? But they were never called Yahweh. Never called Yahweh. That's a, it's God's personal name. And... Uh, but Adan, Lord, personal name, our Lord, that the, the one where just the, the L is capitalized, that's authority and power, which is appropriate because if we're going to talk about someone whose majesty transcends heaven and earth, you're talking about someone who possesses ultimate power and authority. And David declares that the name of the Lord, he says, first of all, is excellent in all of the earth, in all of the earth. Now, David's declaration does that mean that everybody recognizes the name of God being excellent? Obviously not. Does it matter? Do you need to know about the quality of something in order for it to have quality? No. You just haven't experienced its quality. You just don't know about it. Okay. So his name, the, the excellence of his name, is, is, is not currently realized by everyone everywhere on the earth. Okay. That, but it makes no difference to the quality of God's name. But the time is coming. And that's what I love about this. The time is coming when everyone will experience his excellence. Uh, look at, consider what uh, Habakkuk says. He says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge. Yeah, that's, that's experiential knowledge. That's intimate knowledge of the glory of the Lord, just as the waters cover the sea. Yeah, so the future tense is clear. The, the, the universal knowledge of God's majesty as David and Habakkuk are describing, they're going to be realized by everyone who dwells on planet Earth. What would that be like? That's a good term for it. It would be glorious. Yeah, It's going to dawn upon the inhabitants of the Earth when Christ returns and he reigns. Now, briefly, I want you to consider uh, the, the theology that undergirds David's statement. So God's name is excellent uh, in all the Earth, which means uh, it's concerning the the surface of the earth. He's not talking about the interior of the earth. And, and that's here, but then his glory is beyond. It exceeds, it transcends the heavens. So his majesty is both near 
in the earth and far beyond the universe. So in, in theology, we say God is both imminent, it's close, and he's transcendent. That's the perspective that David is trying to be, or trying to give us here. And, and I, it's very interesting. It's his transcendence that makes his imminence so amazing. And that's what we want to understand. We'll, we'll come back to that in just a little bit. Let's move to first, verse 2 first. He says, Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. This statement could not be more random. And, and it, it, it is difficult to really understand exactly what he's saying because there's no context given to the statement. Yeah. But real quick, who is it that ordained the strength? The strength. Yeah, you refers back to Jehovah, to Yahweh. Now that's important because in the New Testament, Jesus applies this verse to himself as the object of infant praise. And I think that it's actually that context that makes the psalm make sense. It was written in advance of a future event. Okay, So you remember the story. Uh, Jesus has ridden the donkey into Jerusalem, and the people are taking the palm branches, and they're laying them on the ground there, and they're shouting, Hosanna, uh, you know, to the son of David. And then Jesus goes into the temple, and he's healing the blind and the lame. And then the children begin to repeat what they heard the the people saying uh, out there on the road, uh, coming down from the Mount of Olives. And they're crying out, and they're saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna to the son of David. This statement, it is a messianic one. Jesus was being praised by the crowds and by the children as the Jewish Messiah, who according to the Old Testament prophets, had to be a descendant of King David, hence son of David. The word Hosanna comes from the Hebrew, which means save now, or help now, rescue now. But here, it's not a proclamation. It's an earnest pleading for the Messiah to rescue his people, as the prophets predicted he would. Be that as it may, when the priests and scribes heard all of the children saying Hosanna to the son of David, it says they were indignant. And they said, do you hear what they're saying? Do you hear what they're saying? And what they're suggesting is that Jesus ought to silence them and then correct them. The leaders probably believed that because they were in the temple grounds, that it was blasphemy for Jesus to receive that praise from the kids. Now, they tried to stop it on the road, too, when the adults were doing it. Do you remember what Jesus said? Yeah, if I silence them, the rocks will cry out. Okay? Yeah. But Jesus said this to them. He says, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise? So in response, Jesus acknowledges that he hears the children. And then in his classic style, Jesus answers their question with a question. They say to him, don't you hear them? And Jesus said, yes. Don't you read your Bibles? It's the same thing. Okay. And then he quotes the first half of Psalm 8-2. Now you'll notice that there is a difference, a different rendering from uh, with the last two words uh, there in Psalm 8-2 from the New Testament to the Old Testament. I mentioned the Septuagint, I believe, Sunday. Jesus is actually quoting the Septuagint. That's a Greek uh, translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Uh, the Septuagint says perfected praise, whereas the Hebrew text itself says ordained strength. Now, they're actually very similar. In fact, the early uh, NIV translation, and many people don't know this, but the NIV continues to go through 
um, um, revisions. They probably should have stayed where they were. But the, 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 one of the early ones, and I don't know which one I should have looked, but it actually translated the text as ordained praise. Now here's what's important. The Septuagint actually focuses on what comes out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, which is praise. That's what comes out. Okay? And the Hebrew text focuses on the result of their praise, which is strength. You see the difference? The focus was just different in how they rendered it. Now, if the priests and scribes were indignant because Jesus accepted the people's recognition of him, being the Messiah, uh, they would have popped their lid if they recognized what Jesus was saying in reference to Psalm 8. Here's the text again. And here you can see, you know, out of the mouth of babes, nursing him, you've ordained strength. And then the LXX means the Septuagint, okay? Because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. Uh, I asked the question, you know, who is it that has ordained strength? And we said, Yahweh, okay? He has. We know that from verse 1. But for whom? For whom did Yahweh ordain this particular praise? How would Jesus answer that? Me. Me. It was ordained for me. Yahweh has done all of this through the mouths of babes and nursing infants for me. I am the object of their praise, according to God's word and according to God's ordination. If they weren't mad before, the priests and scribes, they're mad now. Okay. Yeah, these are the kinds of sayings that pushed the religious leaders to the point of insanity. Okay. Uh, Jesus made claims like this all the time in the Gospels. And I'm looking forward to exploring those again as we go through the book of Matthew. Yeah. But there's a reason that Jesus would utilize the scriptures that way. Uh, the author of Hebrews uh, quotes Jesus' own, own words from Psalm 46 through 8, saying, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book or the scroll. It is written of me to do your will, O God. And you see, the argument that Jesus makes himself and the author of Hebrews, Hebrews is that the, the totality of scripture has its primary subject as the person of Jesus. And then when you look into the Gospels, we'll get there. Jesus says, well, I'm actually the author too. And because I'm the author, I have the ultimate authority to interpret what I said. And it's all written about me. And you could just see the religious leaders losing their religious minds uh, in all of this talk of Jesus. And it, of course, uh, it's what ultimately led to his death. You know, his, his interpretation of his own word, which then affected his practice when it came to the Sabbath and his identity and things like that. Um, you know, when you engage with uh, skeptics, they always say, well, the deity of Christ only comes out in John. Oh, no, 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 no. That's not true. When we go through the book of Matthew, Jesus' deity comes out immediately, uh, just by the word Emmanuel, which he would be called, but then by the things that he says, the things that he does, the fulfilling prophecy. And uh, one of the strongest uh, things about his deity is when he was speaking to the high priest at the bogus trial. And uh, he relates himself back to Daniel. And that's when the priest loses his mind. And, but, you know, those that don't study the scriptures carefully, they don't understand what's happened in that context and why the high priest would be so angry. But Jesus, uh, he, he, knew how to, he knew how to get to the point, didn't he? Yeah. So this certainly is a messianic psalm. It becomes more evident as we go. Let's continue. Three through four. David says, when I consider your heavens, not just the heavens, your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man 
that you are mindful of him and the son of man, that you visit him. Uh, All other modern translations say that you care for him. You visit or care. So the the word visit can, can mean to visit somebody in a good sense or a bad sense, but the context here gives the sense of, of, it, of it being intimate. That's why the other translations say care. But notice that what David is saying in perspective here. He's saying that the transcendent God who created the heavens with her celestial bodies, keeping them in their courses, he whose majesty exceeds all of these, has stooped in his condescending love to care for the human race. You see, the transcendent and the imminent. The transcendent and the So by looking into the heavens, David expresses how insignificant he is in relationship to them. And he's completely over or underwhelmed at the thought of himself, but when he considers the nearness of God in relationship to that, he's completely overwhelmed. So he looks out there and he feels super small. But then when he realizes that the God out there has come so near, that's just amazing. That the transcendent is imminent is awesome. And David is saying, when I give it some thought, I'm bewildered by it. Bewildered. He would, that he would even have a passing thought about us is amazing, but that he cares is something astounding. Yeah. It's coming to terms with both the significant or insignificance of man and then man's position of privilege. It's pretty interesting. But there's more. He says, For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you've crowned him with glory and honor. Now, this requires a little perspective, too. You know, mankind is inferior to the angels in power, beauty, and majesty, but not priority. There's a difference. Okay? And, and eventually, our position will exceed the angels. Okay? This is demonstrated in a few ways. Uh, first, in Hebrews 1.14, the text says, they are sent to serve those who will inherit eternal life. They've come to serve us. And then, the Son of God, the text says, does not come to the aid of angels only to the children of Abraham, okay, who are children by faith, Hebrews 2.16. And then believers will eventually be put over the angels as their judges, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3. That's yet future. So they are above us in the sense of majesty and beauty and power, but not in priority. Humanity has the priority over angels, okay, according to the scriptures. But this all makes me ask questions. You know, why would God grant this to us rather than the angels who are amazing? Yeah, we'll come back to some of that. Um, there's a question from the text I think we should ask. It's this. How has God crowned man with glory and honor? We don't look very regal sometimes. <laughs> How has God crowned man with glory and honor? And the text answers itself. He says, you've made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. Now, where's David referring to? He's nearly quoting a text of the Bible. It's Genesis chapter 1, pieces of it from verse 26 through 28. He's looking back to the historical narrative where God gave man the responsibility of dominion. We've talked a little bit about that on Sunday morning. Created the earth, he put man on the earth, and he said, I want you to take care of it. And he put Adam in the garden to tend it, to keep it. He gave him dominion over the earth, everything in it. Now the question is, I think, why? Why would God crown us with such honor? Why would he commit such a place of honor to us? Why not give it to the angels? (laughs) It's pretty wild to think that 
of all that he's made, he would give us that kind of status in the universe. Why would we be the object of his condescending love? Or we could just ask it the way David did in verse 4, what is man? Or what is it about man that you are mindful of him or that you care about him? Well, I think we have to look at Genesis 2, or Genesis 1 rather, verse 26, for that answer. It's right there. And God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So the dominion mandate is given by God immediately after this statement and because of what it says here. And only because, only because. Did he give a mandate to any of the animals? No. Why not? Because they're not created in his image. Yeah. It has everything to do with whose image we're created in. You know, God is interested in man. He has given responsibility to man. He protects man. He judges man. He redeems man. He sanctifies man. He comes to the aid of man and a host of other things because in the image of God, he created man. That's why. Without the image of God, we're nothing more than an animal. We're just a pre-programmed automaton. That's what we would be. We would have no moral virtue or value. We could not be rewarded or reprimanded or condemned or commended. Okay? We could not be obligated to any moral responsibility or punished for not upholding it. We would have no free will. Nothing about our existence would have any moral significance or eternal value without the image of God. None of that would be there. The status that we enjoy has everything to do with being bearers of God's image. Absolutely everything. <clears throat> Nothing has the protection that we do. Moses recorded in Genesis 9 that it's wrong to murder because man was created in the image of God. James says it's wrong to slander another human being because that's the image of God. Okay? It's, we're protected. And any assault on a human being is an assault on the image of God. Otherwise, it would be no big deal at all. Uh, how many of you guys could, I mean, think it's wrong to speak ill of an animal? I know, my mom, she probably would correct me. Not because of the animal's sake, but because of the language I was using, right? Yeah, the status that we enjoy has everything to do with being image bearers. So all of this theology from Genesis 1, it has to be read into Psalm 8 for that, that, those, that portion to make any sense. And so through David, the Holy Spirit is drawing our attention back to Genesis 1, where God not only created the heavens and the earth, which he's already talked about, but he's crowned man with glory and honor, with his image, given his mandate. Yeah, right when we think it's about us, he makes it about himself, as it ought to be. That's the truth. So I, there's a question I'd like to ask, and I know there's many philosophical answers to it, but why would God create anything in his image, especially when he's omniscient and has infallible knowledge of all future events. <laughs> I mean, he knew in advance that we would corrupt his image, that we would break it. We wouldn't completely destroy it, but we would efface it for sure. He knew that we would rebel against him by bringing sin and death and all kinds of evil into this wonderful world that he originally created. He knew that we would fail to take proper dominion. He knew all of that in advance, and yet he created us. Why would he do that? Yeah. There's a lot of interesting, and I think good questions to that. And whatever exactly is the right one, God had prepared in advance how he would respond to our sin and failure, of course, by sending Christ into the world to succeed where we failed, to succeed where we failed. Uh, 
consider uh, like 1 Corinthians 15, 27, uh, Paul applies Psalm chapter 8, verse 6 to Jesus. As we said, this is a messianic psalm, three times at least. Almost uh, most of the psalm is quoted uh, between what we saw in Matthew, 1 Corinthians 15, and Hebrews 2. But in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul applies verse, eight of, uh, verse 6 of Psalm 8 to Jesus, saying that God has placed all things under his feet, referring to Jesus' feet. Understand the implication of that. The dominion mandate, then, ultimately falls upon the shoulders of Jesus, who is, as Paul says, the second Adam, our true representative now. So Adam in the garden represented us, the whole human race, just as Paul says in Romans chapter 5, that for by one man sin entered the world and death by sin. And then he unpacks all of the theology of that. He does it again in 1 Corinthians 15. But in both of them, he also says that Christ, who is the representative of the believer now, calls him the second man or the second Adam. Okay? And now, as our representative, all of the mandates were put on him. Aren't you glad that he would do it as our representative and succeed where Adam failed? That is interesting to consider. Okay, now one thing uh, we know that, that Christ's full dominion is yet to be realized. And Paul actually says that in 1 Corinthians 15. And we know it by experience, don't we? All you have to do is look out there okay, into our world. He is not yet exercising full dominion uh, over the earth. Okay. So here, that's the gist, uh, what Paul's point is in all of this theology. God created Adam in his image with the responsibility to take dominion over the earth. He failed. He brought sin, death, brokenness, suffering, evil into the world. But Jesus came uh, to remedy all of that, okay, to succeed where Adam failed. There's a few examples of this that we see in the scriptures. We see it in Matthew 4, after Jesus is baptized. It's interesting, the language, we'll look at it in Matthew 4, but the Holy Spirit drove him out into the wilderness there for 40 days and fasting, and he was tested by Satan there in the wilderness. Jesus, did he succeed? He succeeded where Adam failed. We see him tested in the garden when he faced the will of God versus his own human will. Okay? He succeeded. We see it at the cross when Jesus submitted. And he took the curse upon himself. We see this now as he exercises partially uh, dominion over the church. Okay? It would be nice when all of God's people are completely obedient. Amen? Yeah. You're thinking, yeah, pastor, when you're completely obedient. Yeah, we see it when Jesus returns and takes dominion over the earth physically. That'll be beautiful. Adam failed at taking dominion over the earth. Well, guess what? Jesus will succeed. Yeah, where he failed, Adam, the first Adam failed, the second Adam will succeed. Everything, as Paul says, will be placed under his feet. And so David can only conclude, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. It goes without comment. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we love you, and uh, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And um, I pray that in all of the chaos of our world, Lord, of all the distractions, that you'd help us slow down enough that, like David, we could gain some perspective. Not only would we, we see ourselves in relationship to all of creation, which we are minuscule, and also that we would understand 
how massive and big you are. But Lord, we'd also understand that you're imminent, you're near, you're close, that you care. And Lord, that we wouldn't be tempted to think that it has anything to do with how good we are or, or any kind of dignity in ourselves, but it has everything to do with your image in us. Lord, so I just pray that we would be humbled by the perspective we gain. And Lord, that it would lead us as David, that we would praise you. We would say, oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. So Lord, teach us, give us perspective and help us to, to live worthy, Lord, of the conclusions of your word. And Lord, we look forward, help us to participate uh, in bringing your name, Lord, your fame uh, to the whole earth. And um, so Lord, thank you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, Lord bless you guys.